Greetings, initiates, and welcome back to another lesson. I'm Mark Quides, and once again, I'm joined here with my fellow instructor, Josue Cardona. And today's lesson, we will be focusing on Desmond Miles, Abstergo, and the machine known as the Animus. Now, I'm sure you are familiar with who Desmond Miles is, but for those of you who are unsure, Desmond Miles was a person who was kidnapped by Abstergo Industries in 2012. He was taken hostage there and he was forced to be uh, put into this machine called the Animus. Now, the Animus itself, uh, according to Dr. Warren Vidic, is a machine that allows people inside of it to relive the memories of their ancestors. The machine itself takes a look at the person's genetic makeup and it, as Dr. Warren explained, that it, our DNA itself houses these memories as a way of explaining how animals themselves know where to go during migration season, despite never have been there before. And so with ourselves, we can take a look at these memories, given that we can crack them open. Now, for some people, in fact, actually most people, if you want to relive a certain memory of an ancestor, you often have to ease yourself in it because the animus itself can be very mentally taxing. And in fact, there's a lot of grave side effects involving the animus. Josue, do you have any commentary on the animus itself? Yeah, I'm glad we're starting with the animus because I think that it sets the foundation for everything that the Assassin's Creed series is about. It shows that it's about heritage and lineage and history, but it's also about technology and the future. It's very much a science fiction story because even though in in, in the news recently, we have uh, discovered, you know, it's been talked about that there are ways for us to encode information, like just like using DNA and, and matter and um, physical organic matter as a sort of hard drive the version of it in Assassin's Creed, right, is very, again, it's very sci-fi. It's that the, that you can, you can go in, like every single thing that ever happened to your ancestors is recorded in your DNA. So if, if, if you have DNA, <laughs> you can just tap into it with something like the Animus. And it's so important to understand what this technology is, who created it and why we're using it for, I, I think, for the rest of the Assassin's Creed universe to to make sense, because then you can talk about why we're going to different time periods and why we are playing most of the game in in the past. So I think this is a great place to start. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's also really important because in the beginning with Assassin's Creed 1, as far as we're concerned, the Animus will only let you relive your own specific ancestors' memories. But then as we progress later on into the series, uh, in regards to the Animus, um, there's been numerous innovations, numerous additions, numerous uh, modifications to it that allow people to actually experience other memories of you know, people obviously long gone, given that you have a sample of their DNA. So it's it's really, really amazing and it's really interesting that uh, in Assassin's Creed that they have this sort of technology that that in a way that they could easily look back in the past and then you can easily use these things to uh, correct history books, to correct social studies classes 
in and of themselves to ensure that you're always reporting a very accurate information. This is a total way to debunk any sort of speculation in history, such as, you know, for something like uh, the shot heard around the world, where people don't know who fired first. Well, with the animus, granted, I know it'd be kind of difficult, but if you somehow found someone who had an ancestor that was there during that actual time period, you could find out. You could be able to to accurately find out which side fired the shot or who specifically fired the shot. You know, you could you'd be able to know so many different things and the the educational advantages behind the animus in and of themselves is unprecedented. It's one of the big reasons why like I got drawn into the series in and of itself was the idea of being able to go into the past and experience things that you know, you can't ex- obviously experience in the present day. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the the idea is super cool. And again, it's it's very sci-fi. I I love it. I love the, the potential of it. That's why it makes sense that in the future, you know, in future iterations of the game, there are, you know, there are advancements. And maybe, yeah, like it doesn't have to be your ancestor. We can just, we just need a blood sample and then we have everything we need. I like that. But we're on Assassin's Creed 1 now. So all we know is that the Animus requires like that's why desmond was kidnapped right ironically now we know that they could have just uh taken a blood sample and let him go but that, but that's not how this this version of the animus works yeah no this was only the very this is the first edition of the animus so this is animus 1.0 it, so is it is it the first yeah it was the first operational version of the animus that is being used uh or at least at that point it was the most up-to-date model and that's why you know, in later sessions they, they name it differently there or it gets changed around from there. But in this one, as far as we're concerned, this is Animus version 1.0, which is why uh, underneath the actual table, you know, there's this big like either big computer or big power source behind it that, uh, as we see in the game, can be subjective to overheating if you have a prolonged exposure to it or if you're in it for a very excessive period of time. So that's one thing. And then the other thing that while we see that with the Animus, that it has all these great advantages and it's such a great tool, that there's also a really big drawback to the Animus and what makes it so incredibly dangerous. And that's what Lucy calls the bleeding effect. Now, the bleeding effect in itself is it only really happens when you have a very prolonged exposure in the animus and that's where essentially the two the two realities sort of start colliding so you have your so like you have your perception what you're seeing in front of you now if you're in the animus for a very prolonged amount of time then what will happen is that bits and pieces of your ancestors perception of things will bleed into the real the real world so you'll start seeing ghosts or you'll start you know hearing voices from the past and oftentimes this could lead to test subjects from abstergo desmond himself is subject 17 so from there we know that there are 16 subjects prior to him that either couldn't weren't delivering the information that abstergo needed or couldn't handle the effects of the bleeding effect and have either gone insane or have completely lost their minds to to the animus, essentially. So this is what we see at the end of the game when he starts seeing like things on the walls and all of that? Yes, this is where he he starts hearing things. 
he kind of starts looking around and he notices all these weird drawings and markings on the floors all over the wall in his room and this kind of confuses him but then we also know that the one i guess positive aspect of the bleeding effect is that you can sometimes inherit and abilities from your ancestors so the only reason desmond can see these markings and drawings on the walls and on the floor is because he picked up what Altair would call eagle vision, which was essentially a sixth sense where it allowed him to be able to pick up on the tiniest notions in his environment. It helped him identify uh, his targets in a big crowd easily, as opposed to someone who would like really have to struggle with that. Yeah, Altair had an, a lot easier of a time with this supposed eagle vision and Desmond inherited that from Altair by being in the animus for such a long period of time. And so with that, that kind of covers really one of the big drawbacks of the animus is that it could, if, if left unchecked, if you're in there for a very long period, long amount of time, then you essentially lose your mind. And so the, this is why Lucy is often taking great care of Desmond and why she makes sure that he gets his breaks, he gets his rest. Yeah, Dr. Vidic just wants him to keep going and going and going, but Lucy's like, nope, he needs he needs to rest. So we talked about how how it works, potential drawbacks. We even talked about like how uh, how awesome it would be, right? If if we had an animus and we could go back into history and and relive events and and learn and the educational value. But who created the animus? All right. So who created the animus? I cannot remember. This is this is a a little bit of lore that gets picked up, I believe, in the later games as to who exactly invented the animus. But but what do we know right now? Yes, but as as we know right now, Doctor Warren Vidic was one of the people there for basically throughout his entire construction, and I believe he was the one I think who had the idea for it. If I'm not mistaken, I could be I could be wrong, but I know he was. He's been a big part of the Animus project. So this is essentially Warren's or Vidic's baby in a, in a sense. And he's it's designed for the purpose that we, you know, we were stating earlier to look at these memories to and for them, it's to find certain artifacts or the, to, to extract certain information from uh, people of interest from the past. And this is where kind of Desmond comes in. And this is why Desmond is extremely important, especially for the first like five games. He, he's very, very important and it helps bridge into the later games and, and, and the story for that. But that's for another time. For Desmond, the reason why he's so important is because he is a descendant of Altair, who was an assassin during the Third Crusades in 1191 in the Holy Land. The whole reason why Abstergo and Warren Vidic kidnapped Desmond was because they knew this about him and because Altair came into contact with a certain artifact that Vidic and Abstergo was looking for. And so like Abstergo is and Vidic is, they are a company run by Templars, correct? Yes, Abstergo is is actually the Templars, but it's just like their their front. Their corporate front, right? Yeah, and so, so like that's what I was getting at, right? That the the animus is a creation of the Templar Order. It is 
the company is the Templars and Vidic is a Templar, right? So there is, as cool as the Animus sounds, the Templars made it and the Templars are the ones using it. <laughs> I Yeah, it's for those of us who are on the assassin side of things, it's really kind of disheartening knowing that the Templars had this such great technological advantage because they played the corporate side of things and they chose to run things through dirty money essentially to get themselves into to where they are as in terms of a company where it's uh, multinational really it's pretty much global and the fact that they were able to come up with this this machine to do this really puts them at a huge advantage an even bigger advantage, I should say, than the already ginormous advantage they had over the Assassins by 2012. And so now that we've kind of gone over Epstergo, the Animus, and who the Epstergo really is, um, it's important now that we kind of actually address the really big thing of who exactly are the Templars and the Assassins? And why don't they get along? Exactly. <laughs> so I'll talk about the Templars. And I'll also you can talk about the assassins and then we'll, you know, if there's something that we want to add, we'll, we'll go from there. So the Templars, um, they're, they're really originated, or at least their current front, I should say. The Templars, their current front is they're bent on world peace, but they want to do it through a structured order. They believe that they are the ones that are strong enough, that are competent enough to lead the world to world peace that everybody should know their place and do the duties that they are essentially created for that they are born into or something along those lines and structure society structure humanity as like a hierarchy where everybody has a certain role to play and they do that role while the templars themselves sit at the top to help guide people into what they call their new world order. And so that's kind of where their their mission is and where their stance is now. And it really hasn't changed much since the Templars back in 1191 with Altair, where they're hoping to brush the world into this state of everlasting peace to end the Crusades, to make everybody live in harmony, but they want to use it through unethical means, to to put it lightly. Yeah, they want to control everybody. Yeah, basically. Like they think that they know what's best and the best way to to bring about all the good things that everybody wants from the world is, is to take away free will. Yeah, exactly. And so now moving on to who exactly are the assassins? Because the assassins, just the name itself, seems a little, a little menacing. But I feel like they have a very different take on things and and at this point right my understanding of the assassins as far as you know assassin's creed one is concerned is that they are right the assassins brotherhood they exist to basically counter the templars because they're aware of what they're doing uh and it is not okay (laughs) they know a lot of the same information as far as you know the, the artifacts that they're trying to find and and the strategies that they are the, the strategies that they're pursuing to basically get rid of free will and so the assassins are basically fighting against that that's as much as I, I feel like we know in the first game 
that they're just there to stop that. Yes. I mean, that's pretty much it. They are the the counterparts of the Templars, where they believe that the best way for humanity to achieve peace is through their own free will. We can't force people to get along, essentially. Like, that's something that humanity itself should be able to decide for itself. And so that's kind of their their mission, is to counteract the Templars and promote this idea of world peace. And even in the present day, that's still their mission. That's still what they plan on doing. However, in the present day, according to Vidic, the numbers are far, far, far fewer than what they were back in 1191 or some some other point in time. So I'd like to counter both Vidic and something that you said. You said that the, assin- the assassins want to promote this idea of, of free will and all that but i i feel like right, the assassins are the hidden ones right they they lurk in the shadows like if they're doesn't matter how many of them are around in the present day if they're doing their job right the templars shouldn't know right because they 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 are hidden and i feel like that everything that they're doing they wouldn't the assassins wouldn't throw a parade for for defeating the the Templars. I think that they would get the job done and then continue to live unseen. Does that sound that sound right? Yes, essentially that's what it should be like especially in the present day. However, it's because the the idea that they are they have far fewer numbers and the Templars themselves are so technologically advanced it would be a lot harder for them to be able to carry out a mission that would normally be easier if you had, a, a let's say, a group of assassins. It's kind of like sending one man against an entire army sort of mentality at that point, where it's like you have all, like, let's say, we'll give a, a, a completely random example here. So let's say we have a group of two or three assassins, and they need to go after this really high target. Let's say it's some big CEO of, of another of another puppet company of Abstergo. So we have three assassins that are sent on this mission to take this guy out. And obviously they need to make sure, in, especially in the present day, that it doesn't look like it's just a straight up murder. Now, normally, like I feel like if, if it was just a normal Joe Schmo, it would be no problem for them to do this. But because this is someone that's high up in the Templar order, someone who has influence, someone who has power... They're going to have bodyguards. They're going to have surveillance systems. They're going to have all of these extra precautions to ensure that this person is safe. Now you're sending two or three people to take out this one person. And so the idea that they need to not only get past all the guards, but somehow be able to disable or tamper with surveillance systems so that they don't risk alerting other guards, and, or, and especially while doing this all discreetly, a lot, it's very, very difficult. And so that's why, like, while they're trying to do their job it's in the present day, it'd be a lot. It's, it's very difficult. And I mean, even in the game itself, they try to rescue Desmond and they ultimately end up failing and they end up losing. I think actually, I don't think they give a specific number, but they just know it's a group of assassins that are trying to save Desmond, even though Desmond isn't aware of this. He doesn't send for help. But they still know that he's there. They try to get him, and ultimately they fail because there's just so little of them. 
And Warren even says, you know, oh, the place where you grew up, it's gone now. We took care of it. We got rid of that place. And he even boasts when the group, when that group of assassins that try to save Desmond, when they fail, he's like, oh, well, you know what? Like, that's, you know, that he basically is shrug shrugging it off like, oh, it's no big deal. Now that's just like a group less that we have to take care of now because they basically sent themselves on a suicide mission. So that's kind of where it differs, especially from Assassin's Creed 1 Assassins, where they have this giant castle. They're very prominent in the town or city of Masayaf. And I believe it's after the events of Assassin's Creed 1 where we start seeing a change. But in regards to just Assassin's Creed 1, like they they boast. They're they're pompous. They basically are they have a very heavy presence and people know who they are. They know that Masyaf is under their protection. And the people know what it is that they're trying to do. In a, in a sense, like they know, I mean, they may not know the inherent struggle between them and Templars, but they know that they are there for a specific purpose. And they have no shame in, in exposing that. And that's exactly why they have the three tenets of the Assassin's Creed which is to stay your blade from the flesh of an innocent, hide in plain sight, and the most important one, the last one, is to never compromise the brotherhood. Meaning, don't don't bring the enemies back to the home place, essentially. And then Altair proceeds to break all three of those tenets within the first 10 minutes of the game. So you can kind of see that at some point in time, there was a very dramatic shift between the assassin's approach but their methods, I would argue, are still the same. Of They're trying to do things quietly, but in Assassin's Creed 1, their presence was known, but like the way they did things, their methods were more discreet, if that makes sense. I guess it makes sense. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was trying to sound coherent, and I don't know if I just ended up talking in a giant circle. Because, I mean, there's just so much that I have to say and I'm trying. I'm trying really, really hard to keep within Assassin's Creed One context. And I know that as of right now, I'm kind of doing a poor job of that. Oh yeah. But I'm totally. trying. I'm trying. I'm really <laughs> trying. <laughs> yeah, because the only one that's fresh in my memory is number one. And you're saying a whole bunch of things, and I'm like, uh, did I miss that? Did I just forget it after like a week? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I know that there are some things that I'm pulling from from future games. And it, this is why I'm 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 the head instructor, because even though it's been a while since I've played the later titles, their 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 stories, the lore is all still still there in my mind. But I feel like right now we're doing a pretty good job of explaining who the Templars are, who the Assassins are, and who Abstergo is, who Desmond is. And I feel like we've we've covered those grounds pretty well. I feel like maybe we could talk a little bit more about who Lucy is, who who Warren is. Just give a few minutes on them, since they are really the only two other characters in the present day that you deal with. Okay. Yeah. So I, I mean, we've talked a little bit about Warren already. That he's a higher up in Abstergo's chain, their um, org chart. That's the word. So I, Warren's pretty high up there. 
And even within the Templar order itself, he seems like he's a pretty high up there guy. Don't know exactly where he falls in their hierarchy tier, but we know that he's not like some low level grunt. And so he's the one in charge of this project and most importantly in charge of finding the artifact that Desmond's ancestor supposedly has the key to. And so he's also on a time constraint from his superiors. And so that's why he's always trying to rush Desmond to get him to continue on with it. And he even states that if Desmond were to ever become extremely um, uncooperative, they would just induce him in a coma, get the information they need the hard way, and then leave him for dead. In the end, it really doesn't matter to Warren what happens to Desmond. All that matters is the information. All that matters is the progression of the Templars' goals and their ideals. Going over to Lucy, we see her as the assistant to Warren, basically throughout the entire game. And she's trying to be informative for Desmond whenever he asks a question, but she's also very dodgy. She also is very hesitant on what to share and what not to share. And it isn't revealed until very late, pretty much end game, that she is secretly an assassin. And she's basically there undercover. She's trying to get information from Abstergo. And she's basically their intel person. Keeps the, keeps the assassins, or what's left of them, updated out there in the world. So that way, um, they're not completely blind. They're not completely taken by surprise by what the Templars might have in store for them. And so she's trying to help. I feel like she's trying to help Desmond throughout the game, but she's trying to do it in a very indirect way to the point where it's almost no help at all. I think she's just a good assassin. and You can't tell. She's doing her job. <laughs> exactly. She might just be so good that even I can't tell. She's visible. She's visible while being invisible. It's, she's following rule two of the creed, hide in plain sight. Exactly. And I appreciate that with Lucy. Like, I feel like when you go, like, if you take the time to really go through the dialogue, all the dialogue options with her throughout the entire game, every time you end a session, she teaches you. She actually talks about it a lot and she gives a good chunk of lore. It's just that you have to kind of do some digging through her dialogue to, to, to get it and to kind of piece it together sometimes. Cause it's not always the most direct and she's doing that because obviously they're consistently monitored um, by the Abstergo people. And of course this is just, you know, we're, we're still diving deep into Assassin's Creed one and all of these characters are important in the, in the upcoming games. So it's important to, to understand them now. I think it's important to, that we got to cover the animus and what it is and kind of, you know, broadly talk about the, the Templar Order and the Assassin's Brotherhood, because, of course, all of these elements, those three in particular, are the most important throughout the the entire game and the most consistent. I mean, there's other things, too, that appear in every game, but for the most part, by having a, a even just a general understanding of those, we can basically talk about any other game if we wanted to, because those pieces don't change very much. Yeah, like this is this game while its replayability isn't very high, at least in my opinion, the building blocks behind every single game that follows it and movie, you wouldn't really be able to understand anything in the later titles 
without understanding how crucial the building blocks in this game is. I mean, you might be able to piece it together, but this game really sets sets the foundation for everything after it. And I, it, it's, it's to me, I find that very intuitive of Ubisoft that they were able to plan out this gigantic story, this gigantic universe back in 2007. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've built on these core ideas for for over 10 years now. Yeah. And it doesn't get old. <laughs> well, they're, they're really fun building blocks. And they really know how to leave you on a cliffhanger to like want more. Even though like the ending itself might be satisfying, there are still always some elements that are there that's just enough to want to make you want more. There's an overall mystery, right? That that again that transcends time and that that is continuing to unravel even 10 years later. Exactly. Like it's it's really the the present day stuff that leaves you on the cliffhanger that makes you want to understand, okay, well what's going on? Now, what what's ha- what's going to happen next? Because we always will get a nice wrapped up conclusion of the past, but in terms of the present day stuff, that's what they leave you on to want make you want more, so that you learn more about what's going on now, and that's what I really appreciate. This is why the present day stuff matters, people. <laughs> it does. I love it. I love this stuff. <laughs> I know, and I'm. I'm really looking forward to being able to talk about the later games so I can stop holding back as much. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll build, we're building the codex little by little. Just calm down. Uh, don't worry. Easy. Don't worry. I have fast hands. I can write really fast on this codex, okay? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that this concludes today's lesson with the codex. I would like to thank you all for joining us today. Again, if you ever need assistance with understanding uh, what we have written so far in our codex, you can check out our resources. We have our forum over at forum.geektherapy.com, and we have our Discord at geektherapy.com slash Discord. Until next week, class is dismissed, and remember, nothing is true, everything is permitted. <laughs>